0: of the latest installment of Paradigm Shifts, uh, the official podcast of the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine. The purpose of this podcast is to create visibility for young and soon-to-be prolific emergency physicians in academics as well as for their research. We hope to introduce their ideas and research to you, the listener, and to redirect and expand your thinking toward the forefront of science and philosophy in emergency medicine. We're fortunate enough to have with us one of our first young scholars, Dr. Jared Mosier, an associate professor of emergency medicine and critical care medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson, Arizona. Dr. Mosier completed medical school at the University of Nevada, followed by an emergency medicine residency and a critical care medicine fellowship at the University of Arizona. He is dual boarded in emergency medicine and critical care medicine, working clinically in both the emergency department and in the medical intensive care unit. He serves as a co-director for the ECMO service and has over 40 publications in advanced airway management, critical care ultrasound, and today's topic. Extracorporeal Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation. Jared, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we're joined as always by the Chairman of the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine, Dr. Peter Rosen. Good morning. So Jared, I'd like to get an idea from you of how you got into this field of research and how extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation has kind of come to be
1: to the point that it is right now. So some terminology. ECMO is kind of an old term because we don't actually use membranes anymore. We use artificial oxygenators. They're not really membranes as the traditional uh, use of them. So the the appropriate term is ECLS, Extracorporeal Life Support, although we all still call it ECMO. ECPR would be somebody who is in cardiac arrest, who then you put on extracorporeal support. So there's some terminology there that people might see or hear flowing around that they they need to know. From what I understand in reading some history of medicine books, is that the first use of ECLS was also the first use of uh, therapeutic hypothermia, and it was a resident. Skiing in like somewhere in Scandinavia and got caught in an avalanche and caught under uh, an ice bank in a river and was profoundly hypothermic. Got flown to a facility, put on bypass, heart lung bypass, and rewarmed and survived neurologically intact. Uh, so that kind of sparked the trigger of, well, let's put people in deep hypothermia for uh, cardiac surgeries, for bypass surgeries. But it also kind of sparked the interest in, can we put somebody on bypass for heart-lung issues, for acute resuscitations? And so it had been used a few times, mainly cardiopulmonary bypass, for submersion, injuries, and that kind of stuff. The difference between heart-lung bypass and ECMO is that a bypass machine has an open reservoir to the air. So that's why it's used in the sterile environment of the operating room. ECMO is basically bypassed, depending on your cannulation strategy, without that open reservoir of blood. So in the 70s, there was a a case report. I I think it was a trauma patient that got put on ECMO for ARDS did well, and so that sparked this interest in, like, oh, let's use it for everybody. It had been used for kids for, for a long time. And they did the first NIH-funded trial, and there was like a 90% mortality. And so that pretty much killed ECMO, except for places like the University of Michigan, where Bob Bartlett, who's, he's the Peter Rosen of ECMO, <clears throat> he practices there, and they continued to do it through this whole time. And then it just so happened that H1N1 hit in 2009, and we had all these young, healthy people with these cytokine storms uh, that nothing, we couldn't do anything for. We had no advanced ventilator modes, nothing that would really work without beating these people's lungs up, and so people started putting these patients on ECMO, and there was an extremely high survival rate. And. Anytime you have success at one thing that just happens to be sexy, you want to have success at everything with something that just happens to be sexy. And so it has spread out from there to where we're putting everybody on ECMO. For cardiac arrest, the data is really only fairly solid in an inpatient setting where you have a response time that's very short. Patients who arrest in the hospital get put on. Uh, ECLS or ECPR, and they tend to do okay. That has led to we haven't really had any big breakthroughs in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in a long time, and maybe that's because we need to put them on extracorporeal support. With I would argue, I'll, I'll take the inflammatory stance here and say almost zero support uh, in the literature. So there is some support in the literature, mainly case reports and very biased retrospective reports. But if it was any other intervention for any other disease that just didn't happen to be sexy, we would not even be giving it one second's thought. I'll stop there and we can we can continue more later on some of the developments.
0: First I'm curious what Peter Rosen thinks of being called the Bob Bartlett of emergency medicine. So.
2: Probably very flattering, except, <laughs> except they don't know Dr. Bartlett.
0: Um, how many patients have you put on ECMO?
1: Cannulated. How many
0: patients have you cared for oh, that cared have been for? on ECMO? Yeah,
1: hundred and fifty-ish. Okay,
0: so enough to have some validity to yeah. your statements, yeah. not n of one right to now, the hundred and fiftieth. So, um, so Jared, what's your current research? uh, directed toward, uh, and what kind of prompted your interest in going into this?
1: Okay. So going into ECMO, when I was a resident, we had had a trauma patient who was a, he was a good Samaritan. He was like a young kid. I think he was in his mid twenties. He was a good Samaritan stops at the side of the road to help somebody change a tire. It was during the monsoon season in the summer and, uh, somebody lost control of their car and plowed into him and he had a shattered kidney, and he got transfused with a bunch of blood products like we normally do, and he got trolley. And we couldn't, we couldn't save him, <clears throat> and put him on ECMO, and he was on ECMO for a couple weeks, and, and did great, walked out of the hospital, did well, and I thought, this is amazing, and it just happened to be the same time the H1N1 epidemic hit, and so I saw these people going on ECMO, and it was very sexy, and p- patients that would otherwise die were living, and so that prompted my interest in it. And uh, in terms of research, what we're doing now is, is one, trying to figure out who benefits from it. How early do we, do we put people on it, it? Really the literature only supports respiratory failure and how early is too early? Some literature would indicate that maybe if they've been on a ventilator for a week or more that they wouldn't really benefit because the damage is already done. But what we've shown here is that that's that's not the case. Now we put people on who have been at outside hospitals for two weeks or more, and they seem to do okay. Um, <clears throat> how long can you leave somebody on? You know, the the DRG for ECMO pays for 25 days or 28 days or something like that. You know, respiratory failure patients we might keep them on for for two months. You know, so you could see the hospital didn't really like that that much. And so we try to, to, are trying to strategically figure out how long do you leave somebody on. How early is too early to put somebody on? And where, where does ECMO lie? Is it, is it a primary therapy? Or is it a, truly a rescue therapy? And where in that spectrum should it be? And then one of the big problems with ECMO is when you have somebody on ECMO and you burn through a circuit, your body doesn't really like having PVC pipe in it. And so it, it, it causes an inflammatory reaction and everyone gets worse for the first day or two before they get better. And if, if you clot off that circuit, and you have to change it, that's a very high-risk procedure. So we're trying to figure out, can we predict circuit change? What's the best way to anticoagulate? How do we monitor that? And then uh, then lastly, one of the things we've been doing is monitoring people's brains. So we all really want oxygen saturations in the 90s because we assume that that leads to improved cerebral oxygenation. And oftentimes you can't accomplish that with ECMO, even with ECMO. So we've been putting NIRS monitors on people's foreheads and titrating our therapy based off of that. And you you can imagine how well you know, people do really well if they have an oxygen saturation in the 70s, but as long as their brain uh, oxygenation is okay, they do fine. So,
0: For uh, terminology for people who aren't familiar, can you describe the NIRS monitors? Near
1: infrared spectroscopy. It it. it is a tissue, it's an indicator of tissue oxygenation. It happens to give you a number, but that number is not an oxygen saturation, it's a it's an index uh, that's kind of a mix between your arterial and your venous saturation.
0: So it gives you an idea of how well the brain is being perfused.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. We don't really know what the numbers are, but we, we do know really low for a long time is really bad.
0: <laughs> so, you know, ECPR is uh, something that, like you mentioned, very sexy. Sounds like the breakthrough uh, that we've all wanted it to be. It's a holy grail. Everybody that comes in uh, should be put uh, through ECPR immediately, and then we can figure out what the problem was later. But we've got them quote unquote stabilized because now we've taken over their heart and lung. Uh, that's the way I've heard people talk about.
1: It. Yeah, it's the new ventilator, right? When we were residents, it was let's just put them, let's just tube them, and sort it out later. Now it's going to be let's just cannulate them and sort it out later. So.
0: There are institutions throughout the country uh, who are ECLS centers. Yeah. I mean, you come in and they have teams that are prepped and ready to go in the emergency department yeah. to cannulate you and put you uh, on uh, on bypass in order to uh, resuscitate you and then figure out what's happening later. Yeah. There are other people that say this is not something that we should even be considering in the ED.
1: We've done a couple. But- I will tell you, every time I've done it, I've regretted it. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's tough because... So we've developed this uh, rule, especially for respiratory failure, that no one person can make the decision. And it's to keep ourselves in check, mainly keep me in check, because... You know, I want to save everybody, and especially the, the younger you are, the more I want to save you. And I let my judgment get clouded, and if I have this tool in my quiver, how can I not use it? And so I have, I have violated that rule a couple of times in the emergency department, and I've regretted it because it ended up being the wrong patient.
0: Would you say that we're not quite at a position yet of where we've identified ideal candidates for ECLS, ECPR uh, versus candidates that are going to have uh, a poor outcome no matter what we do.
1: Well, that that's that's a very good question. The data that we do have would suggest that if you are if you are the guy who is fifty years old and you're otherwise healthy and you have a big left main lesion that breaks off a plaque and you have a cardiac arrest and you're 10 minutes from the hospital and you get immediate CPR and you just don't get ROSC back by the time you get to the hospital and and you can put them on eCPR and get them to the cath lab and open them up, that they will probably do okay. That's the ideal candidate. The problem is how do you build a program around that for for the ones of people per year that that would save nationally, right? I and mean, think about the the cardiac arrests that you've seen in the last year, how many of them are those patients that don't have, especially in Tucson, right? In Tucson, we're a sprawled out desert city. And so I looked at this, I, I looked at all the patients that came to the emergency department at both of our hospitals, what percentage of them would be between 18 and 75 without coexisting disease who would have gotten uh, immediate uh, uh, CPR for a witnessed arrest and would have been reasonable ECMO candidates. And I made a lot of assumptions in the favor of people being candidates, right? Like, and I, I called Terry, our EMS director, and asked him, you know, what percentage of arrests happen in the community versus at home? <clears throat> and so I made all these assumptions that would benefit the data uh, in favor of ECPR. And even with that it's about one patient a month at both hospitals. The other people who, around the world, really, who have looked at this, I mean, even in bigger cities, have found similar numbers, about one patient per month. Now, if you say that's a, you're gonna have a 40% survival rate, it's a couple people a year that you're gonna save. And, you know, it's a very expensive resource. And so I thought, well, maybe if you're in a city like Philadelphia, Uh, that it would be better to do that. And uh, and talking to EMS people, they said that the assumption that I'm failing to realize is the vertical transport time. You know, If you have a a rest on the 50th floor, it takes just as much time to get you to the hospital as if you're in a desert city. And so it looks like it would be about, and and I can give you tons of references on this, but it looks like it's about one person a month that would be eligible, that would meet the ideal eligibility criteria. Now, as we all know, mission creep, Right, You have a patient that you just don't want to stop on, probably isn't an ideal candidate. You cannulate them. And what are you going to do with that person? Right? So, so cardiology now is committed to taking them to the cath lab. Their numbers are publicly reported. So if they're going to start taking all these people who aren't good candidates to the cath lab, their numbers are going to go down. If you're on VA ECMO, it's really hard to die on bypass and so you take them to the ICU, and then what do you do about that? What if they're not transplant candidates you know, to be donors? What do you do about those things? And I, These are all questions that the body of medicine and the public needs to answer before we go forward with this. I have no doubt that if, you have a, if you're a young person who has a PE and you come in and arrest on arrival, that person should get eCPR. I have no qualms about that. To build a program around that is very difficult.
2: I think there are hospitals that are putting all cardiac arrests on this in the ED. And they've had a number of survivors that are dramatic and uh, rewarding, and therefore they are motivated to do more of it. I'm not aware of a single prospective study that's controlled. I suspect there are some patients who do benefit from it, but I don't personally know who that patient is going to be. I've been quite surprised at the incidence of complications Mm -hmm. in the survivors. And I am very concerned about the cost of cardiac arrest uh, because it's already an expensive proposition to die of your cardiac arrest in the emergency department. And when we add ECMO to it, it becomes far more expensive. And that's a burden for somebody.
1: Yep, yeah. Let me take those one at a time. First is the hospitals that put everybody on. I think there are a lot of hospitals who want you to think they put everybody on. I think there are hospitals that put some people on. I think there are some people at some hospitals that put every cardiac arrest they have on, but I don't think anybody's putting every cardiac arrest on. Number two is, you're right, there are some very dramatic results. I mean, we had one here last year with a professional hockey player as a cardiac arrest on the ice. It, and, and we went to another hospital, put him on ECMO, bring him back. And and he walks out of the hospital neurologically intact. It's all over ESPN and all over the news. And that's amazing. It feels really great to save that person's life. And we want to do that again. My fear is, how many people are we going to hurt trying to replicate that? You know, it, 26-year-olds do not have cardiac arrest very often, you know? And uh, in terms of complications, yeah, the complication rates are high because, I mean, we've all seen residents or even ourselves trying to put in lines in a patient with no blood pressure and they're stabbing back and forth. Uh, And then imagine putting a giant cannula in that thing after you've stabbed it back and forth and then giving them 10,000 units of heparin. Uh, and then, you know, if you do, even if it does go very smoothly, if you have somebody with eCPR, now, now I'll just go out, come out and say, I don't think VV ECMO is an ED procedure, period. If they're too sick to get out of the ED or, uh, without ECMO, they're not going to survive, right? VV ECMO is not an emergency. So that leaves VA ECMO. And if it's for cardiac arrest, that's in the groin. And, and you lose legs. You lose legs. Even if you put in an anti-grade reperfusion cannula, you lose legs.
0: So I'm, I'm going to ask uh, real quick to uh, simplify a bit and just kind of describe for me the process that you go through in order to cannulate somebody and the description of VV versus VA ECMO.
1: There are a million ways to cannulate. <clears throat> uh, people are, the cardiac surgeons are, are very crafty at coming up with new ways to cannulate. So... VV is the easiest way to cannulate because it's all on the venous side. You could theoretically run them without anticoagulation because everything would get caught up in a, in the pulmonary circulation if they do clot. Although I think the incidence of RV failure or acute cor pulmonale in that population is high enough that I bet a significant portion of them have PFOs. So I think a number of them probably have strokes. We just don't realize it. But... Um, the traditional way to do VV ECMO is to put a venous drainage cannula <clears throat> in the femoral vein and then a, a return cannula in the right IJ. And you drain five liters a minute out of the groin, and you, and you run it through the oxygen air, and you put it back in the IJ. But those cannulas are sitting like this pretty close together, and so you have a, you, you might be running five liters, but 50% of that's just recirculating. So companies have tried to develop cannulas that would improve that and drop that amount of recirculation. So the one that is most popular right now is called the Avalon cannula, which is a dual-lumen cannula. And for somebody like a normal-sized person, we would put in a 31 French Avalon cannula. Wow. (laughs) And that goes right in the IJ. Uh, and it goes down the the there are two drainage ports one is it it ends right about where the hepatic vein inserts into the ivc so it ends there and then you have one in the svc and then the return cannula is aimed across the tricuspid valve and that reduces the amount of recirculation but doesn't eliminate it and so there are newer cannulas like the protec cannula that you put in like a swan so you know, those are kind of tricky, and that's why it's not an emer- it's not an emergent procedure, VV ECMO. VA ECMO is a lot more complicated. So let's just say you're a cardiac arrest patient. You have no cardiac output whatsoever. That means all your cardiac output is delivered by the circuit. So <clears throat> that's typically done in the groin, where you have like a, let's say a, a 19 French drainage cannula on one side, And then in the artery, you put in a 15 French return cannula. That's that's still really big to be sticking in an artery, right? Because you do that, you end up uh, killing off the blood flow to a leg, so you typically need to put in a five French anti-grade reperfusion cannula. And that might not be enough for for some people. Um, We have taken the strategy of if we do that, we need to get the cannulas out of the groin as soon as we can once we get them upstairs. But let's say you, you have no cardiac output, meaning you can't open your aortic valve. Well, you're not draining all of the blood. So eventually your left ventricle is going to balloon up and dilate, and you're going to kill it off because it, the transmural pressure gets so high. So you have to drain the LV somehow. So we've been moving people to more central cannulations up top. And there are multiple ways to do that. What we've been doing is taking the equivalent of an annual Avalon cannula, where it's a dual lumen, and then putting it right through the apex of the heart out the aortic valve. So you drain the LV and then put it back in past the aortic valve. But at any any rate, you have to drain the LV if you have no cardiac output. If you do have cardiac output, then you, then you run into the problem of deoxygenated blood from the heart going out the... the aortic valve and very oxygenated blood coming in the groin and they meet somewhere in the aorta and you just hope that that, that meets where the coronary arteries and the brain will get oxygenated blood but oftentimes it doesn't so so that's why VA ECMO isn't super easy either if you have somebody who's got ROSC and they're in there and shock I, I don't think that that's an ED procedure either I think that's somebody that needs to go to the OR and have cannulation done there by a cardiac surgeon.
0: So what you're saying right now, as far as the process, the complications, the outcome, doesn't sound like ECLS, ECPR is ready for prime time uh, around the country.
1: No, I think very specialized centers can can probably do it and answer some of these questions. I don't think it should never be done. I think that specialized centers, ECMO centers of excellence, should answer these questions and f- and, and then we can figure out what to do. What I don't want to see is the cat get out of the bag because it's sexy and it, it recruits people. I mean, one of the things that's happening in Minneapolis is this, this cardiologist uh, who has probably the best prospective data. His initial report was that he had done like 60 people or something and, and so he's an interventional cardiologist and he put his cell phone number on the ambulances with criteria and it was like 18 to 65 or something and, and you've shocked him three times, can't get a pulse back and they have no co- coexisting disease, call me and I'll meet you at the cath lab. So they you know, bypass the ED in Minneapolis and goes straight to the cath lab, and he puts them on ECMO and, and re-perfuses uh, uh, them. And his initial report was something like a 60% survival rate. I mean, that's unheard of, right? What that's done in Minneapolis is the hospitals put up billboards and ads in the paper, and they want to have this mobile ECMO thing. Uh, and this is at the same time where you see case reports, like in France, there's this case report of a patient getting cannulated in the Louvre for cardiac arrest, you know, and so that's
0: about as sexy as you can get. That is as sexy as you
1: can get. And so if you're a hospital, what
2: what picture was he in front
1: of? I I think it it was right in front of the pyramid. You know, it was this great picture. He's in the pyramid and getting cannulated. So, uh, if you're a hospital, you really want that, right? You want all your cardiac, especially the hospital that this guy uh, works at is a cardiac-heavy hospital. So you're going to put up billboards and run ads in the newspaper and all this other stuff. So if you're the other hospitals in town, you don't want to lose that, that business. So you need to start doing it. So that's what my fear is, is that the cat will get out of the bag. And then, you know, I'm, I'll kind of throw the grenade in here a little bit <clears throat> and say that, you know, our own home, our, the home being emergency medicine as a specialty, I fight constantly with people about taking care of critically ill patients, right? Manage the ventilator, check blood gases, do your bedside echo. And I hear this same damn thing from everybody. We don't have time to do that. So my philosophy is, you cannot have both sides. You cannot say, we can't do these things, but yet, we want to do ECMO. And it's purely because ECMO is the sexy new thing.
0: So I think that, talking about that, it's not just, uh, we don't have time. Like, somebody who is on, somebody who is on ECMO is a resource and labor-intensive patient. Um, when I've taken care of patients on ECMO, it is a two to one nursing ratio. So you're yeah. nursing, uh, uh, if you have just an intubated patient, that's generally a one to one patient. ECMO is always a two to one patient. And if it's a fresh ECMO patient, how many nurses are in that room and for how long?
1: Yeah, well, it depends on how unstable they are and whatnot. Well, they're <laughs> unstable enough to be on ECMO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The machines generally are getting more user friendly and easier to operate. So, you know, in, in times where a couple of years ago we had far more patients on ECMO than the nurses that could do two to one. And so we were having the very experienced ECMO nurses manage two circuits and whatnot, and and it worked out okay. And so I think people are trying to relax on that a little bit, but they are very, very resource heavy. I mean, we, we got in trouble at our hospital because we were shutting down the OR, because the on-call PACU nurses were getting called in to help us with the ECMO patients which meant that they couldn't run the operative cases in the OR and so I mean you really bend all the resources of that hospital
0: and it's not just financial resources it's not just the fact that it's incredibly expensive but it's limited resource use it's blood I mean how much blood do you go through on your typical ECMO patient
1: it total it that you know that's a good question and we used to have these egregious targets. Like you had to keep their hematocrit at 35 and <clears throat> you had to keep their platelets above a hundred and this kind of stuff. And, you know, we've been becoming more lax on that every year. We try to, we get a little more bold in how much we'll let it drop before we, uh, tra- trigger a transfusion and stuff. And so I think the blood utilization is go- going down. some. Yeah, you know, so the resource utilization is getting better. It's not getting worse. It will get worse if we start putting more and more people on, um, But I mean, look, I guess I'll sum up by saying ECMO is going to be one of those things where we're either saving tons of lives in the future, everyone comes in and they get plugged into ECMO, or we're going to be talking about, man, you remember when we were killing all those people with ECMO? And I really want it to be the first, (laughs) you know, but I'm afraid it's going to be the latter.
2: My first contacts with ECMO were for patients with viral infections of the heart.
1: Yeah.
2: And they had myocarditis and pericarditis and they basically were healthy patients who all of a sudden got a flu syndrome that enabled them to start dying. Yeah. And they all did well. Are there other pulmonary conditions that (laughs) would seem to indicate that that's where you ought to look for it. Let's say you have the asthmatic patient who isn't responding to any of the conventional treatments. Yeah. You have the pulmonary embolus patient who can no longer exchange gases. Are there any clear-cut diseases that we could think about and say, when we see that,
1: let's do it. The, the clearest is myocarditis. That is the clearest. Every study that looks at myocarditis patients, they do very, very well. After that, it gets. A, I guess the second clearest is a PE, peri-arrest PE patient, or arrested PE patient, that you can do something about that PE. That's probably the second clearest. After that, it gets a little murky. The data are really solid for H1N1 uh, viral pneumonia and respiratory failure. We have extrapolated the success of that to other uh, causes of pneumonia and ARDS, but it seems to me that if you, I guess let me speculate a little bit, okay? So so I'll give you my opinion based on my experience and reviewing all the literature in terms of timing and that kind of stuff. If you have a patient with ARDS that you cannot ventilate, or oxygenate without injurious ventilator pressures and you want to do your thing for up to three days, that's cool. There is no data that would show that earlier is better. But by about the third day, if you're thinking you're going down the ECMO route, you should probably start doing it. And in, in, in the indication there would be, I cannot exchange gas in this patient without clearly injuring them from my ventilator pressures. Even that definition of injurious vent pressures and whatnot is in a state of flux. But, but for lung protection, ECMO is indicated. We have all been kind of waiting for that asthmatic that can't ventilate anymore. And in Europe, they do uh, extracorporeal CO2 removal. And those are smaller cannulas powered by your own cardiac output. <clears throat> you just your own cardiac output pushes blood through the oxygenator, and you sweep the gas off. And and that is really successful. We've all been waiting for that crashing asthmatic that we could put on. The other patient is uh, the upper airway obstruction, the, the tracheal lesion. That if you tried to intubate them, it would be very dangerous. Put that patient on VV ECMO. Do a rigid bronch core out their trachea. Those in my mind are the clear that nobody would ever argue that's a bad patient.
0: So if I could summarize that, it sounds like the indications are essentially somebody who has an identifiable and likely reversible condition that is causing their cardiac cardiac arrest or impending cardiac arrest. If you're
1: otherwise healthy with an acute problem that can be fixed—
0: Because I think about a lot of the patients in pediatrics that I've taken care of uh, that have been on ECMO while I've been in the ICU have been from neonatal ICU. Uh, They've got something like a congenital diaphragmatic hernia that you know we suspect these patients will do well once their pulmonary beds start to uh, improve. Uh, Some patients that have. structural cardiac disease that we think we can fix it's uh, and a lot of patients that have bronchiolitis obliterans or have some other viral pneumonia like flu um, that uh, essentially just trashes their lungs but because they're kids we hope that they're going to do better drowning is another example drowning is a
1: great one so drowning um uh submersion injuries like extreme hypothermia, bridges to transplant, those are all very good cases. I and mean, when we had one recently where this patient took an extremely high dose of a cardiotoxic drug, we put her on ECMO 24 hours later, decannulated her and she did fine. I mean, but these are all otherwise healthy, acute things that can be fixed or just need extreme supportive for care for a little bit of time or a bridge to transplant that's not an ed thing though
0: so transplant i think is is something i'd like to talk about real quick and peter i'd appreciate your input on this as well because i think that this has some uh reflections of transplant medicine in it that we th- we've tried this It's worked very successfully in certain patients, but before we had a lot of data, we started doing transplants. And we said, look, we have to try something, so let's see what'll work. And we've gone from doing single organ transplants to multi-organ transplants to now liver, pancreas, small bowel transplants. We're transplanting organs that have bacteria and pathogens in them from one patient to the next. And we've gone from kind of doing individual cases and having case reports, to case series, to retrospective studies, to prospective studies, to guidelines, to expectations of uh, how we're going to manage a disease. And I can see ECMO and ECLS taking that same course uh, where do you think we're at in that course right now?
1: There's a lot of noise, a lot of noise in the literature and on the the interwebs about ECMO. Right? I mean, you can't get on Twitter, you can't look at an RSS feed, you can't open a journal without seeing something, either a letter or some case report related or some retrospective thing related to ECMO. And there's so much bias and I get asked to review a lot of these and it's like okay well, we did a retrospective study and we looked at patients who got ECMO versus patients who didn't get ECMO and we looked at the survival and you were more likely to survive if you got ECMO well you you put people on ECMO who were likely to survive anyway. So it doesn't, is it the ECMO or is it the fact that you put good people on a therapy that they didn't need? I mean, they survived despite it, not because of it. So I think that's where we are. I mean, there's, there is so much noise that it, I think, is very easy to confuse with evidence. And, and and I don't want to give the like I'm the co-medical director of the program. I love ECMO. I, I really want ECMO to be the thing that, that saves countless lives. Um but I just don't wanna be a, a sycophant about it because I think that it would it's it also hurts people, you know. We've we've hurt people with it and I think that if, if people like me are not cautious and measured about how we do ECMO, that we'll hurt a lot of people with it.
0: And I'm, I'm just curious before Peter comments, you mentioned we hurt people on ECMO. If we're talking about ECLS, we have patients that are dying. How do you hurt somebody that's already dying without getting into specific cases?
1: You don't let them die and you flog them for a week and you torture them, their family, and their family's finances.
2: A lot of what we've done in medicine is not prospective evidence-based, it's problem-solving. We, f- we figure out what the problem is, we figure out an answer to the problem, and then we start doing it. This classically has been the surgical approach, and the surgical literature is filled with, I did this procedure on X thousand patients, I had an operative mortality of 2%, and therefore it's worth doing and I see this problem solving approach being compounded by the fact that the research ethics committees won't let us do a lot of prospective research and I see it compounded by the fact that we don't have anything else to offer. So I think we've jumped the bandwagon with ECMO. I think we've jumped the bandwagon with hypothermic cardiac resuscitation. And I think it's going to be very hard to put back in the model.
1: We're very cautious here because, you know, I I know myself and I know that if I cannulated, we we put these roadblocks in to keep ourselves in check. Right. So so I know that if I had the authority to just make the decision and cannulate, I would put so many damn people on ECMO that it would be out of control. Right. Because. I want to save people. We go into this because we want to save people. And we have this tool that we saved one person with one time. And so we should use it again. And how do you not do that? And so I I, I think it's tough. The N of one to the Nth power is still N of one. Yeah. Yeah. It's true.
0: It's case reports don't define management. Uh, you can't say... I saw this, you know, this happened one time, and so that's what I'm going to do for everybody because it worked. I mean, I've seen some amazing things happen. I've seen the first patient go from ECMO to double lung transplant, which was amazing. Uh, But you can't necessarily say that that's going to be the case uh, for everybody, and and I think that... um, I think that when you're, uh, when you're looking at all of these case reports and all these things you want to happen, it's equivalent of when patients come in and say, uh, well, on Gray's Anatomy, they resuscitated uh, Meredith for, you know, 24 hours, and then she was back on call the next week. How come you can't do that for my loved one?
1: We're hypocrites about it too, right? Because the data for TPA and stroke is far better than the data for ECMO for, for cardiac arrest, right? I
0: think somewhere a bunch of emergency medicine zealots just uh, had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. so.
1: Well, I, I mean, this is a family program, but I'll just say we bitch and moan about TPA, right? And we should never be doing it and this, that, and the other. But we don't bat an eye about ECMO. I mean, I'm sure somebody's probably trying to figure out how to put the brain on ECMO if they could. But... but It's because ECMO is sexy, and I can't think of anything worse than saying, you can't die without a dose of ECMO first.
2: I once wrote a paper called The Technical Imperative, which I defined as any procedure that can be taught will be practiced with a frequency greater than its indications. And the sexier the procedure, the greater the practice. I think a lot of what we do in medicine is based on series if not case reports. We've forgotten that you need controls. We've forgotten that you have to actually compare something to something else in the same population. And we've forgotten that evidence should make a difference in what our management is. And I don't know how to get that back for ECMO or any of the other places where we use it without the the evidence.
1: It's very sexy unless you're the family. And, and then you mentioned
0: indications uh, of essentially a person who has a reversible disease uh, that is previously healthy. What are some of the hard stop contraindications to putting somebody on ECMO?
1: ECMO does not fix shock from a severe metabolic acidosis. If you are, if you are in profound shock because you took metformin uh, and, and the reason you're in shock is because your lactate's 50, ECMO is not going to fix that. Uh, if you have a, s- a severe coagulopathy, that's kind of a hard stop. Although we still try to plow through that. If you have an intracranial bleed, that is supposed to be a hard stop. Although we have violated that. Well, I mean, every time we say this something's a hard stop, we <coughs> violate it. So it's hard to say this is a hard stop. But but in general, if you have something that you that, that is going to kill you. You know, we can't fix that.
0: I mean, I, I've always been told, especially with intracranial hemorrhage, that that is it. Uh, because you need to keep your sirp, your circuit anticoagulated so you don't yeah. clot off your circuit. So if you're anticoagulating a brain bleed, that's very yeah, unlikely. They, they've to show. done MRI, MRI
1: studies on VV patients. And, and VV, you don't even need to, in theory, you don't need to anticoagulate because you just keep the flows high and whatnot. But, uh, but MRI studies of survivors, they all have. Subcortical infarcts, mm-hmm. little micro hemorrhages.
0: Um, so you published a paper, kind of suggesting some of the guidelines yeah. uh, that we should consider when placing patients on ECMO. You, you have to have an, an
1: exit strategy. Would be my number one. I think, you know, the decision to put somebody on is is much more fallible. than than what you're gonna do with them afterwards, right? And and in the emergency department, we're very, it's not my problem as long as I got them upstairs, right? I put them on, I got them upstairs, that's a victory. It's not a victory when now we've got this patient, what do we do with, right? So you have to have an exit strategy. If they're not a device candidate, if they're not a transplant candidate, if you have nowhere to send them, you should not do it.
0: So if you have a center, If you work at a center uh, or you're near a center that has ECLS and practices uh, placing patients uh, on ECMO, what should be some of the considerations before you're going to transfer before you're going to place someone on um, uh, should we be calling the uh, th- at what point should we be calling uh, the specialists and the team if you're in that uh, kind of arena to come down and consider this patient what should you have exhausted before you get to that point And when is it too late?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on what you're doing it for. So if you're doing, if you want to do ECLS for out of hospital cardiac arrest, you need to have that process uh, in place, frequently tested and and simulated. Because if you can't get that patient on circuit in under 45 minutes or so, then you might as well not do it. And you figure 20 minute transport time, uh, assuming that, that they arrested right in front of ems right if they, if they so that's
0: 45 minutes from arrest
1: yeah 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 so if you can't get them on soon then you might as well not do it and you can't have them roll in you do a few rounds of cpr and then say oh someone call the cardiac surgeon or the ecmo team because you know we're all busy doing other things because ecmo volume is so variable we're all doing other things which means we have to drop everything come down and do it. So the only way for it to work for ad hospital cardiac arrest is to have the program in place. We have chosen not to put that program in place because we think it's better for us to spend our resources elsewhere.
0: And then uh, at what point should I be, if I'm calling you and I have a patient that I'm considering putting on ECMO, at what point should I be calling you. What what resources in the ED? What steps should I have gone through already? Do do I need to wait until the patient's been on nitric oxide for a while? Do I need to wait until uh, for respiratory failure? Or do I need to have shocked the patient three or four times out of uh, VF before I consider for a cardiac patient?
1: I don't think for respiratory failure. I think the one time that maybe you would call me is uh, an asthmatic that you can't ventilate. For hypoxemia, I'm just not sure it's an ED disease Uh, because most patients you can you can oxygenate well enough to get them to the ICU and try to settle things out Uh, to answer your question more specifically what I don't want to see is oh this patient's really sick we need ECMO right just right out the gate this patient's really sick call the ECMO team because there's all almost always some things you can do so, which leaves cardiac patients. So if you're not going to have a, an ECLS program in place for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, that leaves the myocarditis patient or the PE patient that's just in profound shock. And I think you call once you've figured out that this patient has something acute, reversible, that needs an early intervention. Then the earlier you call, the better. But, but please don't do what we get a lot, which is this patient is just really sick. They must need ECMO.
0: So to summarize, it seems like ECPR is something that uh, is an intervention that does work, but is still looking for the appropriate patient uh, population to be used in. Just like any of the technology, any of the advances that we have, we're trying. We have a cure, but we're looking for a disease for it. Uh, therapeutic hypothermia is pretty much out for most everything, except for neonatal resuscitation. It actually turns out that does help prevent hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy in that one patient population. So maybe not- Attenuates. Yeah, attenuates. Attenuates. Thank you. Um, But maybe not quite ready for prime time yet, but certainly making advances, looking for uh, the right guidelines, the right uh, patient population, the right methods. Uh, and uh um systems to be put together to use this to affect patients in the best way
1: yeah i mean look look we've we've both now been around long enough where we 've seen a cycle of things come and go right I mean, people aren 't getting swans anymore they 're not getting mass trousers. We're not flooding patients to a CVP of 100. Um, we're not transfusing people to hematocrits of 45 because they're hypoxemic. We've seen this round of things one time come and go. And, and you think ECMO might be that thing. It, we would really, really, really love it for it to be the magic bullet. The odds are that it won't be. So that's why I think we should have a measured approach to it. Reboa is another one that that I will throw in there. I, it is only a matter of time before we figure out we're killing people with Reboa.
0: <laughs> this has been a very inflammatory discussion. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but it's thought-provoking. I, I mean, we have to think about we love these conditions. We love these new this new technology. It's new, so it must be good. And yet... Uh, We don't want to take the time to do the things that we actually know works. Uh, I always think it's striking that when we do resuscitations, that we're focused on these high-end, high-resource, high-cost treatments, and yet... Chest compressions and adequate ventilation just kind of falls by the wayside. We don't yeah. pay attention to these things. These simple things that we know does work.
1: Well, that brings up a good point. The residents ask me all the time, "Can we do ECMO in the ED?" And I say, "No. We, we need to do the basics better first. You know, do the basics, then we can talk about ECMO." But it, look, the thing about uh, critical care research, as it appears to me, and, and I've spent a lot of time in the last six years reading critical care research and doing deep dives and most of the stuff that comes out isn't showing that we're improving outcomes with doing something. It really shows that what we were doing before is hurting people, right? And so for respiratory failure, the reason ECMO has a good mortality uh, profile is not because it's so great. It's because the way we were ventilating them before we were putting them on, on ECMO was hurting people. So, You have to take some of this stuff with caution. Now, I am, I would be very happy to be wrong on all of this and have it be the magic bullet, but I just the probability is that it, that's not the case.
0: Do you think that the technology needs to change and needs to adapt? You mentioned that, you know, we've been doing this for a while, but only now are we starting to, you know, kind of adjust the catheters and, you know, place them in different uh, place them in differently so that it's now transaortic valve so that we're not uh, causing LV dysfunction from the transmural pressure of having it overloaded do we just need to adjust the technology to make it better
1: or i don't know because you 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 can't adjust physics so you always need a big cannula you know either way drainage or return you need a big cannula there's only so much gas exchange that can take place across a surface area right there's only so many ways to artificially do that and so with well, a technology that improves is the user-friendliness and so, you know, when, when they went from roller pumps to centrifugal pumps, there, there's no doubt that was a very good advancement in technology, uh, it, and it's much safer. But now, all the technology advancements are how easy it is to use, and so it's becoming like the iPhone where, you know, you don't even have a button, you just look at it and it tells you what you want. So I don't really like that because I like to tweak certain things and draw blood gases from different portions of the circuit, and now it's more and more becoming that you can't do that. You just plug it in and let it go?
2: I don't think technology is the answer. To give you an analogy, in the days before C-section, doctors used to deliver baby with forceps. There were hundreds of varieties of forceps, and it was very hard to learn how to use them and to use them properly without hurting the infant. And overnight, the technology disappeared when someone did a C-section. And I think if you don't answer the question that we've been posing today, of who's gonna benefit from the procedure, when should we use it, when should we not use it, and what are the known complications, and can we avoid them, then technology isn't gonna help you, it's just gonna make it more
1: technical. Yeah, I mean, the, the data, uh, respiratory failure is the perfect example of this, right? So, so the reason ECMO helps is so that we can rest the lung, Right. But the literature would show that people don't do a good job doing lung protective ventilation. That's our problem. That's not the patient's pathology problems. We are not doing a good job managing the ventilator. So the answer is probably not to jump to putting all these people on ECMO. It's to do a better job managing the ventilator while we try to answer some of these questions in a scientific fashion.
0: Uh, So, Jerry, what do you what's your uh, comment to people who disagree and think that we should be doing this more, if only to learn more about it and just, you know, ECMO for everybody until we do figure it out, because, hey, we might save somebody. Because that seems to be, if you go on social media, you go on foam uh, uh, and kind of hear about this, it's, it's new, it's exciting. And as with most new and exciting things, we don't know enough about it, and that's why it's exciting.
1: That position is just as speculative as my position. And, and look, I, I am perfectly fine uh, doing things outside the box, I mean, I'm the guy that gives propofol for migraines, so I'm perfectly fine trying stuff. I think that's how science advances. Something for everyone is not a good stance because you might save someone, right? So I, I don't think you can take that stance and also say that you believe in evidence.
2: Earlier, someone said, you can't do a procedure which you can't tell whether the patient is surviving because of the procedure or in spite of the procedure. And when you have something like ECMO, which is so resource intensive, so financially intensive, and so unknown, then I don't think it's right to use it for everybody.
1: Yeah, you know, these, some of these highly specialized centers need to answer these questions. Until that happens, I do not think it should be widespreadly used.
0: Um. Just as we kind of close uh, to the end of the podcast, uh, what do you hope that your research will kind of contribute to this field that's very new and has a lot of questions?
1: I think that the opportunity to save lives lies in respiratory failure management, not cardiac arrest. So. We have chosen not to really go down that pathway because, again, it is the ones of people per year that it might save. But respiratory failure, there's a lot of people, especially now that these – epidemic and pandemic episodes of viral AR viral initiated ARDS are becoming more severe and more common, that I think that's the place where we need to figure out who do we put on ECMO, when do we put them on ECMO, and how long can we leave them on ECMO?
2: Well, thank you, Jared. I I think that anybody who faces this and isn't motivated to think about it, and we didn't even address some of the ethical issues uh, I think you're missing the whole point of how you advance science in medicine. And I thank you for trying to do that.
1: Thank you for having me. And thank you for the opportunity with the, the fellowship. I really appreciate it.